This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I am once again Michael Walker and I am joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Michael. It's it's like getting cold, but the day the, it's still cold, but the days are getting longer. So that's always I feel like I'm on the up. I actually do think that's one of the hardest questions I ask on this show. You know, being put on the spot, how are you doing? I, I, I always find it quite terrifying when I'm co-hosting. Um, but you did quite well there, Dahlia. Um, I think you, you passed the flying colours. Coming up later tonight, migration is back in the headlines after new projections from the ONS. We'll go through some more media spin surrounding Israel's war in Gaza and an update on the story of rail bosses bragging about free government cash. Stay tuned for all of that. A hell of a lot to discuss this evening. First story. Israel's war on Gaza is now in its 117th day. The country's intense bombardment of Gaza has seen almost all of its 2.3 million inhabitants displaced, and 27,000 Palestinians in the enclave have now been killed, with children making up at least 11,000 of the dead, according to reports. 66,000 people have also been injured, many severely in a territory with almost no operating hospitals. And yet heavy bombing continued last night in Gaza with intense fighting around the NASA hospital in Khan Yunis. This IDF released footage shows house-to-house fighting by Israeli troops in the city. Many of the houses, shops and other buildings are completely empty. That's because large areas of Khan Yunis have now been evacuated as Palestinians flee south to the Rafah crossing. But while the war rages on and growing numbers of Palestinians are pressed against the territory's southern border with Egypt, a new ceasefire deal may be on the table. Now, Hamas are reportedly considering a new ceasefire proposal with the group's leader, Ishmael Haniyeh, heading to Cairo for talks. What's in the deal then? Well, the plan came out of talks involving intelligence chiefs from Israel, the U.S., and Egypt, as well as the Prime Minister of Qatar. It reportedly involves a free-stage truce, with negotiators hoping it will last at least a month. In the first stage, Hamas would release all remaining civilian hostages. In the second, all soldiers would be freed. And in the third, the bodies of dead hostages would be returned to Israel. As many as 4,000 Palestinian prisoners could be released in exchange. However, a sticking point for Hamas seems to be a longer-term solution to the war. They've said its aim is to end Israel's military offensive in Gaza and secure a full pullout of Israeli forces from the territory. And a sticking point for Netanyahu is, well, everything. The Guardian report him as saying this, I've heard statements about all kinds of deals, so I wish to clarify. We will not end this war with anything less than the achievement of all its objectives. We will not withdraw the idea from the Gaza Strip, and we won't release thousands of terrorists. None of that is going to happen. What is going to happen? Total victory. Now, total victory, um, from Netanyahu's perspective, is an absolutely terrifying prospect, as it essentially means um, making Gaza completely unlivable. I mean, they've gone a very long way um, towards that goal already, and kicking everyone out of the Strip, right? They want the Gaza Strip empty. So that's what total victory, I think, means to Netanyahu. I think that statement as well, I mean, you've always got to be careful. Do you take people at their word? Is he talking to a domestic audience? Would he actually um, accept a ceasefire short of what he's saying? But if he's, you know, speaking truthfully here, that basically means they're not getting the hostages back, right? There there is no way that you can get his total victory, which is to completely um, destroy uh, Hamas, 
um, which will mean completely destroying Gaza and get their hostages back alive. They can only do that with some kind of deal. I mean, the Hamas sort of perspective on this is interesting as well because they're saying, you know, we want a a permanent ceasefire before we release all the hostages, which, you know, obviously holding hostages a war crime. They should ethically be released immediately. But from a strategic perspective, if you're Hamas, you're thinking, well, the only leverage we have to not be completely destroyed into dust um, is these hostages because that's what's, you know, let's be real, that's what's creating pressure for Netanyahu in Israel. It doesn't seem to me that the Israeli public at this point, I mean, a few of them are, but the vast majority of the Israeli public seem to have no sympathy um, for, for, for Palestinians. So the only leverage, the only possibility, the only thing that will make um, Netanyahu limit his you know, complete destruction of the Strip is this issue with the hostages. So you know, Netanyahu is saying they should release them now and I'm not going to promise a ceasefire. Well, well, then why would they? You know, it's not a completely coherent position, which I suppose for him, you know, just gives him an excuse to keep on fighting. He doesn't seem to mind. Um, obviously, the consequences of that are severe and profound. I want to show you this report I found incredibly powerful. It's from a BBC broadcast and shows the consequences of Israel's war on Gaza's children. Born amid the horrors of Gaza's war, she's never known a parent's hug. She was delivered by C-section after her mother, Hannah, was crushed in an Israeli airstrike. She died before she could name her baby. We've lost connection with her relatives. Nobody came. Her mother was killed, and we don't know what happened to her father. Over three months of relentless Israeli bombardments haven't spared the youngest Gazans. Israel says it tries to avoid hurting civilians. More than 11,000 children have reportedly been killed. Many more have seen their families wrenched away. The bomb fell on my mum's lap, Abid says. It took us days to take all her body parts from the rubble of the house. By the sandy graves of some of their relatives in a school-turned-shelter, the cousins of the Hussein family sit together in trauma and grief. Each has lost one or both parents. Every day is hard. It's not nice. There's no water, food or drink, says Kinza. Everything's sad. All Gazans now strive to find safety and rely on aid handouts for the basics of life. The UN's Children's Agency says its biggest concern is for an estimated 19,000 children who are orphaned or have ended up alone with no adults to look after them. With their lives shattered, UNICEF says nearly all of Gaza's children need mental health support. And even when the war's over, many will be left with terrible losses that they'll struggle to overcome. 19,000 children orphaned or without parents to look after them. 19,000. Right? That statistic is just, I mean, heartbreaking. Right? And this is what our government is still supporting. This is what the United States is still supporting. I mean, so much of that report from, from the BBC, credit to them, I think it was a very powerful report. The, uh, the kid who said, it took us days to take all her body parts from the rubble of the house, talking about his mother, a bomb had landed in her lap. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, really powerful report from the BBC, but we still have a UK government which is imposing absolutely no consequences on Israel and actively supporting them. I mean, what can you say about this? Yeah, they, they're supporting in full knowledge 
um, that this is the impact of their support. I think what I have found so striking is that disaster relief and you know people who work in healthcare in so-called conflict zones who have have had to create entire categories to describe the kinds of trauma that Palestinian children, particularly Palestinian children in Gaza, but also, frankly, Palestinian children in the West Bank as well. This has been going on for many, many years. I, I remember a couple of years ago, a story of this young boy called uh, Rayan Suleiman, who um, was coming home from school. And when he was coming home from school, he and his two brothers were chased by Israeli troops who once they got into their house, the Israeli troops were banging on their door, accusing them of throwing stones at Israeli tanks. And as those boys fled their home again to run away from these Israeli troops, Ryan Suleiman literally died of a cardiac arrest. Like he died of fear of these Israeli troops. So it's not just in Gaza. It's not just now. This is a long going war against Palestinian children, obviously has reached unimaginable escalations. But for me, it's the fact that that new categories have had to be invented. You know, we obviously know um, about wounded child, no surviving family, but also the different kinds of categories of trauma to describe the kinds of ongoing, relentless forms of trauma that these children are being subjected to. You know, when a child falls over and hurts themselves, they turn to their mum or their dad or an adult for comfort and they need that comfort in order to feel safe and in order to to heal from you know being hurt these children are losing limbs and they have no adults to turn to in for the comfort in the aftermath of that i mean i don't know how we as a world can like look at those children in the eye and talk about we're the civilized ones i mean it, it's it's absurd it's ridiculous I suppose children without parents will only increase um, the responsibility of UNRWA, um, the the chief um, relief agency in Gaza and the whole of Palestine, um, to to I suppose care for these young people. You know, they they run schools, they run hospitals, and our government is choosing to compound the human catastrophe by defunding UNRWA. We've spoken at length about this on this show. Why it's a ridiculous decision. And Tory MP. Um, Tobias Elwood. He disagrees with us. He seems to think defunding it was the right decision. And he was on Al Jazeera today defending that position. I recognize that Hamas would have made a lot of effort to try and infiltrate not just UNRWA, but other agencies uh, as well. If we want to help the people of Gaza, we need to make sure that all these organizations can operate free of external uh, influence. Okay, where is the evidence, uh, since you mentioned a few times that Hamas may have infiltrated UNRWA and other agencies as well? Could you show us any evidence of that? Well, I'm not going to be able to show you any evidence from here in London, but I'm so aware do, do of you what think Hamas it might be? does. I'm not going to be able to show you any evidence from here in London. However, I am in a position to opine um, that this organisation is you know, essentially not fit for purpose. Right, This organisation, which is providing a lifeline, to hundreds of thousands of people, oh, I, 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 it's not my job to provide evidence. Well, can you at least point to the evidence? Well, the concrete evidence we seem to have, right? There are questions actually about how concrete it is, but UNRWA say they have sort of launched investigations into, I think, nine or 10 people. Um, obviously, the initial allegation was that there were 12 workers for UNRWA who took part in the October the 7th 
attack. Now, I'm, I, I, I don't know if that's true or not. It seems plausible. And the reason it seems plausible is because 13,000 people work for UNRWA, right? 13,000 people, right? UNRWA is not this sort of small NGO. It is the organization because Palestine doesn't have a state. It is the organization which has chief responsibility for schools and hospitals, right? So it, it's like you have, um, you know, a, f a few teachers in um, Belfast who happen to have joined the, the IRA, you know, obviously we're, we're talking back in the 80s or, or 70s now. And then in response to that, the budget of, of, of the whole local authority gets completely cut. Schools close. You know, there's no one picking up the bins because a, a few members of staff, you know, took, took part in, in these activities. It's completely, completely disgraceful. And I think to be an MP, you know, he was the former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee or the Defence Committee, sort of saying, well, I mean, I don't have to provide evidence. If you're going to make a claim on television, you should have some evidence, right? We should at least be able to point to some evidence. Over the last 24 hours, Al Jazeera has also reported on the discovery of 30 bodies um, buried in a school. The remains were reportedly found near the Indonesian hospital compound, which had been under Israeli airstrikes. Witnesses say they are Palestinian civilians who were executed by Israeli forces. The bodies had been placed in black plastic bags. As we were cleaning, we came across a pile of rubble inside the schoolyard. We were shocked to find out that the dozens of dead bodies were buried under this pile. The moment we opened the black plastic bags, we found the bodies already decomposed. They were blindfolded, legs and hands tied. The plastic cuffs were used on their hands and legs and cloth straps around their eyes and heads. I think we have struggled to sort of 100% verify this particular story. Obviously, in that Al Jazeera report, they're saying, you know, this is reported to, to have happened. Lots of people have been sharing those videos on, on, on social media. I mean, uh, Dahlia, I mean, it's, it's, of course, sort of in line with lots of the things we have been seeing in Gaza. And I think what's relevant here, you know, this thing was found in a school. So all of this controversy about UNRWA, you know, UNRWA run lots of the schools. They said, well, 12 out of 13,000 people um, took part in October the 7th. Well, 150 people who work for UNRWA have been killed in this war. And now it seems that what, what, what seems like people who have been executed are being buried next to UNRWA schools. Now, that should be a bigger story to me than the fact that, you know, 0.01% of, uh, of people working for this organization um, took part in a terrorist action. I mean, what's your, what's your response to that? The West has essentially abdicated all responsibility to even give the appearance of being invested in an equal application of principles or law. Because what you can see in these two stories, you know, countries like Britain willing to overnight take extremely drastic action, which is to, to defund a UN agency over a speculative accusation or the prospect of a particular thing being true. Meanwhile, you have documented footage. And obviously, as you say, this might not be specifically verified, but there is ample evidence of, you know, including evidence that has been, that the ICJ has recognized of the Israeli military engaging in illegal activities, in war crimes, right? And despite all of that, there is still this mealy-mouthed kind of, oh, you know, we don't want to kind of like get in involved in another country's affairs, as it were, or we aren't going to kind of, we're going to hum and whore and we're going to sort of 
throw out a few press releases and say, you know, oh, we think that Israel should abide by human by um, international law and da da da, but not actually take any material action, despite the fact that we have ample footage, ample evidence, including evidence that has been recognized by the ICJ as being valid, that does not stimulate any kind of action. Again, you have seemingly no ability to rein Israel in or place pressure on on Israel. And yet, when the Houthis uh, disrupt shipping routes overnight, so much military and interventionist um, might can be put towards that part of the world in order to make things go the way that the West wants them to go. And so what that shows is that, and what I think this moment in particular has shown, is that this entire idea of there being this commitment to this rules-based order and that it's, you know, it's the West and the rest and the West are the exemplars of a, you know, a democratic, law-abiding um form of government, and then you have the rest of the world that is governed by these rogue states who have no respect for institutional, um, for international law or institutional precedent, or have no respect for kind of the norms of the international order. Actually, it is, that is precisely opposite. And that it is actually a case that now um, we have a, a complete, not only Israel being behaving as a rogue state, but all of their allies, Britain, the US, also technically behaving as a rogue state, if we are going to take the the common sense definition of a rogue state, which is a state that shows complete lack of interest in international law or breaks international law freely and represents a threat to other nations. Under that premise, how can we argue that Israel and its allies are not behaving as rogue states. Very well put. Let's go on to our next story. Migration is back in the news after projections from the Office for National Statistics um, suggested that the UK population will increase to 74 million by 2036. Now, that would mean an increase of 6.6 million people or a 10% population rise um, from the base year in the study, which was 2021. Now, of that 6.6 million increase, um, net migration would contribute 6.1 million. The other half million would be due to more people being born um, than dying within the UK. Now, here's some more of those projections. So, according to the ONS, between 2021 and 2036, I love it's mid 2036, as if it's, it's precise enough to say that, 10.8 million people will be born, 10.3 million people will die. 13.7 million people will immigrate long-term to the UK, and 7.6 million people will emigrate long-term for the UK, or long-term from the UK. Um, now, it's important to note, this isn't a prediction, it's a projection. And, and the, the difference between those is because it relies on some assumptions. So if it were the case that the government, for example, were to sort of radically change their immigration policy over the next few years, then these numbers would be radically different, if you see what I mean. So, you know, obviously human action can intervene here. Um, ONS projections are used to calculate the likely demand for housing and public services. And the organisation is now working on the assumption that from 2028, net migration will contribute 315,000 extra people um, to the UK's population per year. Um, now, the new figures have caused some controversy because they are much higher than in previous ONS models and the organization updated their prior model after the UK had net immigration of 745,000 people last year, which was by a long way um, a record-breaking year. 
And the Tory right, as you can imagine, have sensed an opportunity. The former immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, said this. The ONS forecasts that 92% of our population growth between 2021 and 2036 will come from immigration. That's not how you create a united country. From 2028, they forecast net migration at 315,000. This will only deepen the housing crisis. Now, he is right on one level that immigration does have an effect on, on the housing crisis, right? If you have more demand for housing, that will um, tend to push prices up, especially sort of rental prices. But it will only do so, this is important, it will only do so if we don't build enough new houses, right? We can also control how many houses there are in the country. And on that point, the Tories have done very little. You might remember Michael Gove promised planning reform, but it was Tory backbenchers who quashed it, right? NIMBYs on the backbenchers who said, no, we, we can't have more houses even the Tory way, right? The Tories, of course, have an even worse record when it comes to building social housing. But on that front, they are also scapegoating immigrants for creating a problem. They've leaked plans to try and give British citizens priority on the council housing waiting list, which they've built British homes for British workers. Housing Minister Lee Rowley defended the idea on Sky. Fundamentally, with social housing being that finite resource, which I've just talked about, we have to make sure it's used in a way which works and which prioritises people who need it the most, but also people who play by the rules. OK, so you're further down the list if you're not British or have indefinitely... Well, we'll, well, we'll consult, but we are seeking to prioritise in, in, out of this, following the consultation. Of course it's fair. It's fair that people who've been here for a long time, who have paid into the system, get the better access to social housing, which is a precious and finite resource. Social housing is a precious and finite resource. I agree, right? I, I do agree. But what frustrates me is hearing a Tory say it, because it wouldn't be so precious, it wouldn't be so finite, if they hadn't sold it all off without replacing it. Now, this chart from the Resolution Foundation shows net additions to England's social housing stock from 1946 to the late 1970s. Between 100 and 200,000 social homes were added to England's total stock every year. But then it all changed in the 1980s. As you can see with the green and purple bars, new social housing falls to way under 50,000 every year. And the green bars show the hundreds of thousands of homes that were sold off in right to buy. Now, you can also see in this chart, that the story was hardly better under New Labour. Lots of social homes were sold off. Barely any new ones were built. However, speaking on Sky, Shadow Cabinet member Peter Kyle had a different story to tell about the Blair and Brown years. In the last hour, um, Housing Minister said, British homes for British people. Um, is that something that the Labour Party would agree with? Well, actually, uh, when the last Labour government, we, we introduced measures that made sure that people who do come here um, have to have, have work and then also have to be uh, working for a period of time before they can claim things like housing benefits. So those, those or housing allowances. So it is, it is right that people who are, who are in areas where there is a real acute challenge with housing know that housing does go to people uh, who, who are already born and raised in certain communities, because if they believe people are coming in, it can damage the fabric of that community. Now, in Peter Carl's defence, he did then go on to talk about house building being the real issue, right? He said, um, Labour will build lots of homes if they get into power. But I'm yet to see a proper reckoning from new Labour fanboys on the failure of their heroes 
to build social homes. And I'm actually yet to see a proper explanation of how they will be different, right? They talk a good talk, we will build XYZ number of homes, but they haven't put a sort of, you have to put quite a lot of money behind that if you want to build social homes. And then if you want to build, you know, market rate homes, you'll have to do some planning reform. That's going to be difficult politically. I'm not sure I see the plan there. Um, Dahlia, this story, I mean, in a way, it's sort of really generated, I think, from sort of debates on, on GB News. You sort of had Matt Goodwin talking about, I mean, he actually used some, some fairly dodgy statistics about the number of non-British people living in council houses in, in London, I think it was. And it turned out that he meant, you know, essentially non-white people. Um, but this, this, this sort of narrative, this story, we're being told about council homes and immigrants, and then also with these um, record levels of net migration. What's your response? Well, I mean, as a taxpayer, which is this incredibly overinflated, moralizing kind of subjectivity that the conservatives love to say that they're acting on behalf of. I would much rather that my taxes went to housing people wherever they're from and in whatever circumstances than it did than my taxes going on what they're currently going on, which is helping to bomb children in Gaza. So first of all, you know, let's stop doing that and maybe we'll free up enough money to build social housing so that everyone can get a home if they need it. Robert Jenrick, you know, a lot like his uh, former boss, Suelo Braverman, is very concerned about, you know, who is having babies and who isn't. And that's what kind of is the underlying thing that that is in this whole kind of conversation, this whole discourse. Whenever they're talking about population, the, imp- the, impl- the implicit thing that they're getting at is are the right people increasing the population? Because here... Jenrick is bemoaning the fact that, you know, the the population increases as a result of immigration over the next 15 years is going to be untenable. And that's why there's not enough social housing or housing period. And yet, just at the end of last year, he was at a policy exchange fringe event where he was bemoaning the fact that British people were not having enough babies and that the population was declining and that essentially British people needed to have more babies so that those babies could grow up to care for the aging population so that we don't have to pay non-white people to look after um, relatives, especially elderly relatives. So really what he's getting at there is he wants the population to increase, particularly the younger population, but he just doesn't want those people to be black and brown. And if that sounds racist, it's because it is racist. And it obviously goes without saying um, that you know, the gag of this all is, is that even if migration ended tomorrow, I can guarantee you there would still be no increases in social housing. And they would simply find another group of people to scapegoat as the reasons why they're not putting enough money into social housing or into or putting in the kinds of policies that would enable housing to be built, whether social or private. Because I am old enough to remember in the 2000s, when every tabloid newspaper and every sort of scummy documentary um, was about how largely white working class women, particularly in the North, were having too many babies. And that the reason there was a housing crisis was because these women were having babies simply to get social housing and they weren't taking care of their kids. And there was too much, too many, basically too many babies being had, again, by the quote unquote wrong People. So if they're not going to blame their failing housing policy and the fact that we have, you know, our housing market is essentially a casino for the very rich rather than a system to actually give people homes, 
if they're not, if they can't find migrants to blame, they're just going to blame, you know, the bottom of the rung of the white population, which is typically women, single mothers, working class people, and north people from the north of England. So this is why it's really important for, you know, white working class people in particular to not buy into this because all that matters is that they have a scapegoat to excuse the fact that they are not taking responsibility for putting resources towards housing people in this country because everyone deserves a home. I don't care where they're from. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they've done. In, 2000, in 2023, in Britain, everyone should have a home. And the fact that that is not happening because we have a financialized economy, because we have a government that is not taking responsibility for that, because people... Not only is our housing stock shocking, but people's wages are not increasing at, at a rate that enables them to afford rent or to even afford, God forbid, buying a house. They are saying instead of actually addressing that, they're just looking for their next scapegoat population. And when it's not going to be migrants anymore, it's going to be segments of the white working class. And we should know that increased border controls and all of these things are not the route to better public services simply by looking at the last 10 years. Border controls are at the tightest they've ever been, and yet the housing and public services is at their absolute worst. So that makes the very obvious point that this is a policy and investment problem and a housing design problem and an urban planning problem rather than a migration problem or a problem of single mums or a problem of asylum seekers or any of the range of scapegoats um, that, that the Conservatives and, frankly, the Labour Party have blamed for the housing crisis in this country for decades now. They are not the cause of the housing. People needing homes are not the cause of the housing crisis. It's the people whose responsibility it is to provide and build those homes failing to fulfil their responsibility because their priorities are with a financialized economy where homes are first and foremost an asset rather than a resource. I agree with the, the general point you're making. I suppose I'm not quite convinced that, you know, more border controls, to, I mean, I don't think more border controls really solves a housing crisis, but the fact that we had tighter border controls over the past 10 years and had a, 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 a higher, you know, a, a worse housing crisis, that's, we still had, we still have record migration, right? So it's, it's not so much the border controls that would make a difference, it's how many people are coming here and the, the extent of the rise of the population. Now, I'm very much of the side that sort of like lots of migration is good and we should respond by building lots of houses. But I think to say there's no relationship between migration and a housing crisis because we had strict border controls over the past 10 years and still have a housing crisis. I'm not, I'm not, my social science brain is, there's some red lights flashing. I don't know, do you want to respond, Dahlia? Well, ultimately it comes down to the core issue, which is that border controls don't actually reduce migration numbers in any significant way. What they do is they increase the proportion of migration that is done irregularly um, and is done and is and creates people who are desperate and people who are struggling. Because when you have an uneven world, where you have a world where certain countries steal the wealth of other countries and use that to develop themselves, the people who are from those countries where that money has been taken from and those resources have been taken from are going to move to the places where the opportunities have been hoarded. And particularly when you have in countries like Britain, um, particularly in cities like London, you also have a dynamic where those cities can't survive without underpaid migrant labour. And so 
border controls, the reason I say that is because border controls don't even do what they say they're going to do, which is actually reduce net migration, reduce the number of people crossing the border in any kinds of significant ways. So I guess it's kind of um, a way to also get at the point that migration doesn't, that my border controls don't actually stem the flow of migration because... My social science, I've got... I've got red lights flashing again. <laughs> a lot of migration, a lot of migration happens because we live in an unequal world that co- that ultimately displaces people because of lack of economic opportunity, etc. You know, I think that can be. I mean, I, I think I, I hear this. This is another argument that I hear get made that I think is. I think border control. You can agree or disagree with them, but border controls definitely reduce the amount of people that come to a country. I mean, like an example when when we were in the EU and there was freedom of movement between Poland and Britain. You know, almost a million Polish people came. Now, it wasn't the case that if we hadn't signed that free movement... Now, I didn't mind that. You know, I, I like new Polish people in my area. I think it helped the economy. I quite like the cultural enrichment of having lots of new people around. But there were a million people that would have... There wouldn't just have been a million illegal Polish migrants coming here if we had sort of set up border controls for them. So I, I feel, again, that this is... You know, I think there are good arguments to say, let's have more migration, but I'm not convinced the argument that they'll come here anyway, so we should have no border controls makes sense. We should we should park this debate before we get too deep into it, but I'm going to give you the final word before we move to the next story. So the data that I'm relying on is from the Migration Observatory, which basically shows that where you hadn't had border controls in one at one stage, when you then introduce those border controls, because those flows of migration are already established, um, that actually they don't get reduced in any kinds of significant numbers. Whereas the example of Poland is actually the reverse, where you didn't have a migration route that was like very well established, but then one was opened up. I think it would be really interesting to see over the next sort of 10 to 15 years what those numbers are going to look like. But the kinds of target, the number targets that are that are offered by the government as a result of their, of their border policies is not, is not backed up by the data of what actually happens it doesn't certainly doesn't reduce by the kinds of margins that they claim right, i said i'll give you the final word and i'm sticking to my word um, let's go on to our next story earlier this month navarra media broke an exclusive story it was from our labor movement correspondent polly smive and it was a pretty good indicator of how britain's privatized rail system is failing it centered around a presentation given by bosses at train operating company avanti west coast the presentation featured slides saying roll up roll up, get your free money here. That was in reference to money received from the Treasury. Well, we're happy to say that the story got picked up by the political establishment and meant that those responsible were further scrutinised. Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham raised the issue in a Q&A session with train bosses, including the Managing Director of Avanti West Coast, Andy Mellers. About the slide presentation uh, that talked about... Um things being too good to be true and free money. You say you're kind of implying that's like a one individual in the company. If somebody's preparing slides for a meeting, sure, it's very easy to find out who gave the instruction for those slides to be presented. But doesn't it, the fact that slides can be presented for a meeting in with that type of language, doesn't that say it's more than one individual making unacceptable comments? Isn't there a problem with the culture inside your company that slides of that kind can be presented to a meeting where a number of people might be present? As I said, we are undertaking an investigation into what went on there in terms of the adequacy of the processes and the controls 
in the production of that material. We did apologise. That language was unacceptable and the investigation is currently in progress. But I'll reiterate that the service quality regime is a part of the National Rail contract. It is designed as an independent audit regime to drive up standards <coughs> And that's what the regime has been demonstrated to do in terms of on-train standards, stations, and also uh, customer uh, information. Don't the slides reveal the truth that you're more interested in making money than providing the service to our residents? No, we are absolutely resolute in the need to deliver a good experience for our customers. And that's about delivering year-round resilient operation and driving up. Uh, the customer experience. So can you give this committee a cast iron guarantee today that there will be no repeat in 2024 and what we have had to put up with in 2023 and 2022? I can give you a cast iron guarantee that we're working hard to minimise that that will happen. But there are a number That of wasn't my question though, no. But there are a number you of... You might work hard, but you might be working hard on the wrong things. Can you give us a cast iron assurance that performance will be much better in 2024 than it was in 2023 or 2022. Well, I can say that the actions that we've taken meant that performance has improved over the past year. The last two Office of Rail and Road quarterly reports have demonstrated that, and we will continue to make progress. Man, you really do not want to be in, I don't know if they call it a select, a select committee when it comes to sort of um, regional government, but you don't want to be in one of those Q&A um, sessions, I mean, especially in the Northwest, because that is one of the worst rail services around when it comes to sort of cancellations and, and, and being late and then to have you, you've been discovered that you were talking about free money from the treasury all incredibly humiliating for the guy i would probably say thoroughly deserved uh, obviously i don't know him personally um the story was also raised by westminster politicians it emerged this week that Avanti West Coast bosses were recently caught giving PowerPoint presentations, uh, bragging about receiving free money from the government. Is this value for money? Well, I'm, I'm not aware of these allegations, but they sound very concerning, and I'm very happy to look into them on behalf of the Honourable Lady. In a week where Avanti trains are bragging about free money from the taxpayer, whilst rail passengers <laughs> suffer poor services, whose responsibility does she think that is? That presentation highlighted all what's wrong um, with the uh, and uh, all was wrong and the inherent waste of passengers uh, and taxpayers' money in the current privatised model. Avanti uh, and other operators, including foreign state-owned rail operators, are laughing at us. Uh, one slide was headed "Roll up, get your free money here," describing how the government asks them to deliver good customer service and projects uh, before sneering. Then they pay for it, nearly all of it. Avanti West Coast did apologise for the presentation and they have launched an investigation into the source of the leak. That's what they always do, is that the leaker was the problem. We saw, we saw the same thing in the Labour Party. Um, the company is investigating a handful of staff who were unwittingly sent an email containing a link to the all managers presentation. Only the managers were supposed to see that slide. Um, this has led to the RMT accusing Avanti of carrying out a vendetta against its staff, a charge that the company has denied. Of course, stories like this and everything we do at Navarro Media is only possible because of the donations we receive from our audience. Um, help us do more great reporting from more great reporters like Polly Smythe and visit navarromedia.com slash support. That link is in the description. Next story. Time and time again, at key moments in Israel's genocidal war against Gaza, 
Western politicians and media outriders have sought to put the focus of the world's attention, not on Israel, but on the depravity or the supposed depravity of Palestinians. Now, when the war was first beginning, we were bombarded with lurid, now debunked claims of how Hamas tortured babies. And now, after the ICJ has found that Israel might plausibly be committing genocide, headlines have been dominated instead by UN agencies supposedly being filled with terrorists. But in between those two events, there was another key moment in the war. At the start of December, a week-long ceasefire between Hamas and Israel ended, and Israel once again began its deadly bombardment of Gaza. So the focus should really have been you know, on what Israel were doing in Gaza. But around that time, with that renewed bombing, there was another deeply disturbing set of allegations being circulated, this time involving sexual violence. Hamas has committed sexual violence. They've committed rape. Um, we have no reason at all to doubt those reports. Um, uh, when you look at all the atrocities that Hamas uh, carried out on October 7th and the atrocities that they have carried uh, out since, the fact that they continue to hold women hostages, the fact that they continue to hold children hostages, the fact that it seems one of the reasons they don't want to turn women over that they've been holding hostage and the reason this pause fell apart is they don't want those women to be able to talk about what happened to them during their time in custody. Um, certainly, there is very uh, little that I would put beyond Hamas when it comes to its treatment of civilians and particularly its treatment uh, of women. CNN has, has led the coverage when it comes to the evidence uh, mounting in Israel of uh, rapes and, and sex crimes committed by Hamas against mm. women and girls, maybe even against men, uh, on October 7th. Why do you think the United Nations and the international community has been so slow to condemn these atrocities? I, I can't think of a real reason, um, well, let me just put it this way. I've heard anti-Semitism hypothesized as a reason why the UN and the international community might be uh, so slow to acknowledge this. What do you think? The uh, sexual violence that uh, we saw on October 7th uh, is beyond anything that, uh, that I've seen either. Uh, so thank you for doing that. And look, I don't have a good answer to that question. I think it's a question that these organizations, these countries, need to ask themselves. Hamas using rape, sexual violence, and terrorism and torture of Israeli women and girls is appalling and unforgivable. And you should, when I was there, saw some of the photographs. And it's beyond, it's beyond comprehension. We all have to condemn such brutality without equivocation, without exception. So as you heard there, these serious allegations about sexual violence also came with a critique of UN organizations who seemed, or purportedly, they suggested, were reluctant to determine whether mass rapes had taken place. Now, on this show, at the time, we did a detailed segment defending the UN, and we made two key points. First, while the allegations against Hamas fighters were appalling, the evidence about systematic sexual violence was fairly thin. And second, that Israel attacking groups like UN women was a bit rich, given they were refusing to let those same groups into Israel to investigate the claims Israel was making. Saying, why won't you condemn these supposed crimes, or these alleged crimes, I should say, that you, even though we won't let you investigate them yourselves, right? It, it seemed to us to be somewhat, you know, there were questions to be asked, right? And a number of other outlets made similar critiques concerning the quality of evidence deployed by Israel and their American backers. Right. After that, though, in late December, 
the New York Times came forward with a high-profile report which they claimed put to rest any skepticism about the extent of sexual violence used by Palestinian fighters on October the 7th. Now, the article was titled Screams Without Words, and it was by a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, Jeffrey Gethelman, and it claimed to confirm that Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October the 7th. The NYT said their investigation uncovered new details showing a pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality against women in those attacks. Now, it's those words, weaponized, and pattern that are particularly important because the article suggested that the sexual assaults alleged to have occurred on October the 7th weren't random, but rather they were part of a pattern. And that would suggest, you know, that the much lar- that there was a much larger undiscovered um, quantity of sexual violence. So they've sort of, they're just seeing the surface of this, this much deeper iceberg, this pattern um, of sexual assaults. Now, the article also said that sexual assaults were weaponized by Hamas. So in other words, Hamas used sexual violence in a deliberate and premeditated fashion as a weapon of war. That was the big claim being made. And as I say, this was all sort of as sort of the second round of the bombardment of Gaza was taking place. And that piece was widely shared at the time as incontrovertible proof that the claims being made by Israel and their allies were borne out in fact. A little bit later, just two weeks ago, The Guardian published a very similar piece They said that evidence points to systematic use of rape and sexual violence by Hamas in the 7th of October attacks. Now, both of these reports were very influential, shared by lots and lots of people, as I say, as confirmation um, that all of these allegations made by the Americans and the Israelis had been true, essentially. But again, both of them appeared to contain significant problems. So the first problem was a claim the New York Times made about the family members of a purported victim of sexual violence. Now, the NYT story opened with the description of a viral video of a dead Israeli woman, clothing torn, her face burned. Her family later identified her as Gal Abdush, a working-class woman who had disappeared from the Nova rave along with her husband, Nagi. Now, the New York Times reported this. Some members of the Abdush family saw that video and another version of it. They immediately suspected that the body was Miss Abdush, and based on the way her body was found, they feared that she might have been raped, right? So again, you know, appalling. Um, you know, this person did die. It's, it's a tragedy and a crime, right? But it's important that we're very clear about what are the facts in this case because the family denied the specific claim there, right? Two of Gal Abdush's sisters took to Instagram to dispute the New York Times claims about rape, with one suggesting the family had been manipulated, She wrote that the Times had only, quote, mentioned they want to write a report in memory of Gal, and that's it. If we knew that the title would be about rape and butchery, we'd never accept that. Other family members objected too. Now, Monda Weiss reported this. On December the 29th, the Israeli website Ynet published an interview with Eti Bracker, Gal Abdush's mother. In the interview, the mother says that the family knew nothing about the sexual assault issue until the piece in the Times was published. Quote, We didn't know about the rape at all. We only knew after a New York Times journalist contacted us. They said they matched evidence and concluded that she had been sexually assaulted, unquote. Then on January the 1st, Nisim Abdush, Nagi's brother, appeared in an interview on Israeli Channel 13. During the 14-minute interview, Nisim repeatedly denied that his sister-in-law was raped. He explained that his brother Nagi had called him at 7 in the morning, saying his wife was killed and he was next to her body. Then he continued to communicate until 7.44 
and never mentioned anything related to sexual assault. Nisim also stated that no official party informed them of these doubts or this investigation, neither the police nor forensic experts. In the interview, Abdush reiterated that his brother's wife was not raped and that the media invented it. Right, So you have a family here claiming they were manipulated by New York Times reporters and denying the article's central claim about sexual assault. Right, So the article says, when the family saw this picture, they assumed sexual assault. The family have said, that did not happen. Right, That is not true. There was also a second problem um, with the article. So the New York Times seemed a bit quick to make an inference from testimony that didn't necessarily justify the inferences they were making. So a former IDF Special Forces soldier told the paper um, that he had witnessed five men in civilian clothes rape and then murder a woman. So again, horrific allegation, but in no doubt, absolutely horrific. The authors of the New York Times piece, um, though, used evidence like this to conclude that rape was used as a weapon of war by Hamas. So a very, very specific claim. But listen to what that witness, so he's called Raz Cohen, told CNN a week after the article was published. I know none of this is easy to talk about, but it's important that the world hear from witnesses. While you were hiding out that day, hiding from Hamas, uh, you saw five men, five of these terrorists, pulling a young woman out of a van. Tell, tell us what you saw next. I hide in the bush, and uh, 30 meters from the bush, I saw a, a white van that arrived uh, near the bush. And uh, from the van, uh, uh, five guys, five uh, uh, civilians is from uh, Gaza. Normal civilians is not uh, soldiers uh, from Nukhba's uh, soldiers. It was uh, <clears throat> regular uh, people from Gaza with uh, normal clothes and uh, they uh, started to pull her clothes off. Uh, it, was, it was like a half a circle, and uh, the girl was in the middle of the circle. And uh, after they pulled the clothes uh, off uh, of the girl, uh, they started to one one of them started to to rape her. So again, really, really horrible, horrible allegations. And it, you know, it speaks to the intense suffering so many civilians were subject to on October the seventh. We shouldn't deny that, right? It's absolutely true that lots of civilians suffered enormously, right? And I'm sure there were lots of you know women who who did suffer sexual violence, and that's awful, and of course that should be condemned. But that particular interview does create a problem for the New York Times, because they explicitly said that Hamas used rape as a weapon of war, right? And claims like those of Raz Cohen were used to justify the idea that sexual violence was part of Hamas's battle plan. So that was the key talking point, you know. These guys went into um, Gaza, and it was a specific part of Hamas's battle plan that they would rape as many people as they could, essentially, right? But that doesn't seem to back up that claim. And as I say, it was an important claim because this was used just as Israel was restarting its bombardment of, of Gaza to basically justify it. Of course, they have to keep bombing Hamas. They are so, you know, they are so depraved. They are not like any army that anyone has ever fought before. You know, these, these are the, the definition of, of pure evil. Um, now, Cohen, who you just saw in that interview, he would later refuse to be re-interviewed by the New York Times, um, saying he was, quote, working to recover from the trauma 
he suffered. Now I can imagine that man, you know, has suffered um, a lot of trauma. Finally, there was a third problem involved in the New York Times, simply not vetting its witnesses properly, right? So some of the most graphic and shocking testimony in the New York Times report um, comes from a 26-year-old woman called Sapir. She is described as one of the Israeli police's key witnesses. Um, but the New York Times corroborated her testimony with this. So they say, Yura Carroll, a 22-year-old security consultant, says he was hiding in the same spot and he can be seen in one of Sapir's photos. He and Sapir were part of a group of friends who had met up at the party. In an interview, Mr. Carroll said he barely lifted his head to look at the road, but he also described seeing a woman raped and killed. So you now have sort of two witnesses instead of one. That's very important when you're writing this kind of um, article for you know the paper record in the, in the United States. But a simple check would have found that Carroll seemed to have told a very different story to the police. So in an article written six weeks earlier than the NYT piece, um, Israeli newspaper Haaretz said this about what a witness matching Carroll's description had told officials. Another witness who has recounted the incident to police was a man who was hiding behind the eyewitness and didn't see the rape. He said she told him at the time what she saw. So again, having someone who was there and was told at the time that is, you know, a significant witness or a significant, you know, person to to talk to about what happened, but it's not quite what was written in the New York Times. Now, for its part, the Guardian article we showed you earlier, that simply just replicated much of the New York Times somewhat sloppy reporting, right? So they, they sent it out as this push notification. So there's a really important piece of journalism, but it actually seems to have been lifted largely from other outlets. So on the left is the opening of an NBC News article published in early December. On the right is the Guardian investigation published six weeks later. As you can see, entire passages were copied word for word. Now, of course, all of this was taboo to raise at the time. Of course, this is a very sensitive subject, so it's understandable to some degree. But it now turns out that concerns about this reporting have actually been aired within the New York Times, right? And it's apparently caused a significant internal controversy. The Intercept reports that the New York Times pulled an episode of its high-profile podcast called The Daily, featuring the sexual violence story after an internal row broke out at the paper. In the article, Ryan Grimm and Daniel Bogoslaw write that the episode had been scheduled for January the 9th, but they describe the sequence of events like this. As criticism of Gettleman's story grew, both internally and externally, producers at The Daily shelved the original script and paused the episode, according to newsroom sources familiar with the process. A new script was drafted, one that offered major caveats, allowed for uncertainty, and asked open-ended questions that were absent from the original article, which presented its findings as definitive evidence of the systematic use of sexual violence as a weapon of war. That new draft remains the subject of significant controversy and has yet to be aired on the flagship podcast. The producers and the paper of record find themselves in a jam, run a version that hews closely to the previously published story and risk republishing serious mistakes, or publish a heavily toned-down version raising questions about whether the paper still stands by the original report. One Times editorial staffer told The Intercept this, there seems to be no self-awareness at the top. The story deserved more fact-checking and much more reporting. All basic standards applied to countless other stories. You worry about talking about such sensitive topics like this, but I actually think it's sensitive topics like this where, to some degree, sort of ideological warfare is used. And I think we saw that, you know, because pressure is put on people, right? So pressure was put on the UN. Why aren't you recognizing and condemning the systematic use of, of, of rape in this conflict? Is it because you hate women? Is it because you're anti-Semitic? 
And they're saying, well, show us the, the evidence. You know, we want to be able to do our investigation. No, why? What, you wouldn't demand to do an investigation of anyone else. Well, they probably would, by the way. And so all of these aspersions are cast about sort of how they don't care about Jewish women. And to me, it seems that a similar thing might have happened at a number of newspapers, right? Where they were saying, why aren't you reporting on the mass rapes? Why aren't you reporting on the systematic use of, of rape? And then those newspapers feel like, oh, okay, we should publish on this. But I'd sort of the testimony from people within the New York Times, and I think we've shown the audience sort of some of the real problems with these pieces. You end up because, you know, it, it seems to me the editor says, come up with a detailed story about the systematic use of rape as a weapon of war. And then you're kind of looking for evidence to back that up. And you end up sort of accepting evidence which really is of a, a much lower standard than you would sort of accept for a story which, you know, the editor didn't feel some reason that they wanted specifically to publish it or they didn't feel obliged to publish it. I mean, wh what do you think about this? It is a shocking, not only negligence of journalistic ethics, but exploitation. Um, in a moment like this, when, you know, the, from the moment that the 7th of October happened, I think everyone knew that we were on the brink. We were going to be on the brink of a huge backlash and a huge war. In that moment, the kinds of reporting that you do requires a huge amount of rigor and sensitivity. And for me, it's not only the fact that you see a suspension of journalistic norms, for example, in not corroborating sources, in not, you know, um, interviewing a source multiple times to ensure that their, their story doesn't change, all of these kind of journalistic 101 processes not being followed at a time when what you're putting out there is, go is, is going to have a real human cost, that on its own is incredibly, is incredibly shocking and is a huge abdic abdication of responsibility. For me, what I found to be something that I haven't even heard of happening in any other kind of case is the story where you have you know, a family of a girl who was killed agreeing to a story on the premise that this story is going to be about, you know, their daughter or their, their family member and essentially being coerced into consenting something that was going to frame what happened to their daughter or their, their relative in completely different ways. I mean, imagine finding out that the story of your daughter's death has become a rape story when that story has been published. And I think for me, that really does speak to this idea of people were looking, these journalists were looking for a particular story and were willing to even betray their own sources and exploit their own sources in order to get that story. And for me, you have to, you can't help but think it was a choice to suspend journalistic norms in that moment. And you have to ask yourself, why? And for me, this is not about asking, you know, for special treatment from the New York Times. What we're simply saying is journalists need to do their job, do the job that they're trained to do. And the job that you're trained to do is to make sure that when you're going to put out incredible, particularly very sensitive claims in an extremely sensitive moment, that you apply the normal levels of due diligence that you would apply to any, you know, I've had experience, I'm not an investigative journalist myself, but I've had experiences of seeing journalist friends of mine following a story. And then at some point they could be like 70% into that story and eventually getting to a point that like where they say, you know, I don't have enough 
witnesses or corroboration or means of corroboration of this story to actually go ahead and publish this story, even if they would feel that, you know, I put in all this work and I feel like there's something here, but it's simply not enough for me to be able to put pen to paper. Either I have to find more in order to fill those journalistic standards or I have to drop the story. And for me, it's it's particularly in the fact that you have those family members and those those relatives who spoke to the New York Times and seem to have come out to say that the story that they gave is not the one that was actually printed um, or that something was extrapolated from the things that they said to make a story that they never claimed. That, to me, is actually the clearest indication that a serious drop in norms um, happened. And for me, I have to ask the question, why in this situation were those norms dropped? I think in reference to that family, so I think they have since said that they don't want the discrepancies between what they thought the article would contain and what they, you know, what it did contain to sort of mean people say there was no sexual violence that happened on October the 7th. It seems very, very likely that sexual violence did happen on October the 7th, right? There is there is testimony, but there isn't, what there isn't is enough evidence for the strong claim that I feel the Guardian and the New York Times really wanted to make that it was systematic it was used as a weapon of war. And essentially, you know, the command came from the top of Hamas and that this was sort of, this is part of the nature, the inherent nature of, of Hamas is that they are a bunch of rapists, right? That was not borne out here. And I think, you know, whatever it is that the family think about this, the, the fact of the matter is the New York Times said the family saw this video and believed this, believed that it meant that she'd been raped. And then the family said, no, we didn't, right? So whatever, the, however the family feel about this now, that's a factual error. That's a discrepancy that needs to be answered for. Dahlia, um, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Michael. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Um, come back tomorrow. It won't be me tomorrow. You're, you, you don't have to worry about tuning in again and it being my big old face in front of you. It'll be someone else. Moira, I think. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support. <laughs>